0: Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the Co-Pill associate professor of political science and concurrent professor of law here at the University of Notre Dame. I also have the privilege of directing our constitutional studies program. Uh, is co-sponsoring uh, today's event with uh, Notre Dame's Federal Society um, just a, a word about our debate today uh, we will use the raise hand function uh, anyone we have a small group here gathered together to watch in person uh, but for those who are online you can use the raise hand function uh, to ask questions uh, after our speakers have uh, a chance to to speak uh, we're co sponsoring today's event with uh, Notre Dame's Federal Society, and it's my pleasure to introduce the president of the Federal Society, Allie Howell, Uh 2L,
1: right?
0: 3L. 3L now, 3L, uh, Hillsdale undergraduate, and 3L here at Notre Dame Law
2: School. Allie. All
1: right. Um, thank you so much, Professor Munoz and the Khan Studies program, for co sponsoring this event with us. And I'm excited to introduce our faculty um, and our moderator today. Um, so, Professor Yu is the Emmanuel as Heller Professor of Law and Director of the Korea Law Center, California Constitution Center, and Berkeley Law School's Program in Public Law and Policy. His most recent book is Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu received his JD from Yale Law School and clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and Judge Lawrence H. Silberman on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And Professor Prakash is the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School. His most recent book is The Living Presidency, An Originalist Argument Against Its Ever-Expanding Powers. Professor Burkash also received his JD from Yale Law and clerked for Justice Thomas and Judge Silberman. And finally, our moderator today is Dean Ruder. He he's the General Counsel, Vice President, and Director of Practice Groups of the Federalist Society, and he received his JD from the University of Maryland Law School.
3: I guess I'll go first. It's a great pleasure uh, to speak here um, at Notre Dame. I'm sure it's soon to be renamed the Amy Coney Barrett School of Law and University. Um, both, uh, Sinai, and I, uh, we uh, have very similar careers uh, and also had the, uh, we both clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman in the DC Circuit uh, and then we clerked for Clarence Thomas. We, in that capacity, I think we both uh, had the pleasure of meeting uh, Judge Barrett because she clerked for Judge Silberman uh, as well. So I think I've probably known her since she was 26 years old, maybe 25 years old. And uh, uh, we have a lot of stories to tell during the Q&A for all the reporters out there who are already digging up dirt for her confirmation hearings. Uh, but this, uh, this uh, debate is also great uh, because it's uh, great to be here with Phil uh, Munoz, who's done, I think, such a great job building the program there at Notre Dame. And this is, uh, I've never seen this happen before. Phil sitting at the back of the room, his mouth covered silently, not speaking. So I'm going to take advantage as much as I can of this wonderful opportunity of munyo's silence, which will not last for long, I am sure. Um, the other thing I say is it's great to be here with Sai. Sai uh, and I actually spent a whole year together uh, clerking at the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas. And you don't get your own office there. You may not know this, but you actually share an office for the whole year. And I spent the Whole year arguing with Sai, and as you're going to see in this this debate, he is so obstinate. He never changes my his mind. For a whole year, I kept trying to persuade him on from everything from big issues to little. Issues. I can't remember a single time he ever changed his mind. So we're going to give it another try. See if we can get Cham change, change his mind this time. So uh, let me uh, start out by um, uh, saying up front: four years ago, uh, I wasn't on. Uh, the Trump train. I wasn't the supporter of President Trump's. Uh, I actually was quite worried about him and especially about the Constitution uh, because uh, President Trump's a populist and populists often dislike the Constitution. They don't like restraints on their power. Uh, they want to fulfill the mandate that they feel they are carrying on behalf of the voters and they often strain against or even campaign against the status quo and the normal way of doing things. And I think that's a good way to describe what a constitution is. It's the constitution is there to, in many ways, to create and keep in place a status quo. Uh, however, and uh, know, uh, and also let me say, I think this has been a consistent worry about the Trump presidency uh, throughout the last four years, culminating, of course, I think, uh, in this January's impeachment. It's hard to believe. It's just a few months ago, but we actually, our our political system was wrapped up in the process of an impeachment, an impeachment of a president for exactly doing what is the subject of this talk. Did the president abuse his executive powers? You may remember Nancy Pelosi said, uh, we have to impeach this president uh, because he thinks he's a king. Um, However, at the end of four years, I am actually left thinking, Unintentionally or not, consciously or not, Trump has been defending the Constitution. He's on, in a way, many ways, compared to four years ago, the most unlikely supporter of the Constitution. Uh, look at what uh, is going on uh, right now. We have a Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, I, I can't speak for Psy, but I, I, I do hope that uh, our country, for the first time, will correct its errors and finally put someone from Notre Dame on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's time. I mean, not everybody has to go to Harvard and Yale, right? Um, President Trump is trying to fill that seat by following the constitution. Constitution says the president can nominate uh, justice to the Supreme Court. Doesn't say that that power ends in any certain time period before his term is over. Uh, The Senate has the constitutional power to give its advice and consent. Uh, that's actually where, and we could talk about this later, that's where I think actually all the political and constitutional action is gonna be about this seat is not really the White House, it's gonna be in the Senate. But Trump's not the one who said when he came into office in 2017 with the Republicans controlling the House and the Senate too, let's really take control of the Supreme Court and add six seats to the Supreme Court and vastly expand the lower courts too. That's actually Trump's opponents. Similarly, it's Trump's opponents, not Trump, who've said, let's get rid of that electoral college, this antiquated hangover from the days of slavery, which only produces racist results. It's not Trump, it's his opponents who I think want to create, make permanent an unconstitutional entity a permanent independent council, which will have the right to use the criminal laws to intervene in our political disputes. That's not Trump, it's his opponents who want to expand the powers of the federal government into control of the energy sector, the transportation sector, the housing sectors in ways I think run quite contrary to the limits on federal power and the role of the states in our system. I think what the story, uh, uh, the argument in my book, and I think the story of the last few few years has been that Trump has so enraged his opponents because he's a disruptive force politically, without a doubt, because of all his ethical issues, all the political issues, all the drama, that his opponents have gone and sought the change of constitutional norms, practices, and traditions in order to bring him down. And in fact, Trump has tried to restore constitutional Uh, values, and and mostly by playing defense, mostly by trying to defend the legitimacy of his presidency. So let me give two examples here. One is the, of course, the Russia collusion investigation. Uh, You may recall, President Trump fired Jim Comey as head of the FBI, set off claims of obstruction of justice, led to the appointment of a special counsel, Robert Mueller, who in the end cleared Trump of the Trump campaign of collusion with Russia, but left open the question whether the uh, obstruction of justice had occurred. To me, if you step back and look at what that meant constitutionally, you had, I think, an attack on Trump from a permanent bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that thinks it knows better than the political system, who's fit to be president, that makes the claim of independent, apolitical, neutral, professional, or technical, or scientific judgment, and that that should be superior to the output of the political system. And you could see Trump, by firing Comey, by reasserting the right of the president to control the personnel and the agenda of the executive branch, Trump was trying to restore a kind of 18th century constitution where we the people elect people to office, we choose the president, and that president who is responsible to us controls the bureaucracy. And you can see the claims of a Comey or a Mueller or the law enforcement bureaucracy, this claim that they have this kind of technical, nonpartisan judgment and expertise as a 20th century constitution, one created really by Woodrow Wilson intellectually, that claims that, uh, all the problems our government can re- be reduced to scientific questions. And what we want is not a government that's under the control of politics as in the 18th century, as in our original constitution, but a government that's freed from politics and insulated from politics. And I think that's really what that was about was you had a rise of the law enforcement bureaucracy against this unorthodox disruptive, but political president. And Trump had to fire them, had to fight with them in order to uh, fight for the original constitution. I'd also say impeachment has a similar uh, flavor to it. Here you have, again, a disruptive president who does not agree with the establishment on foreign policy, on the way to conduct diplomacy, completely unorthodox in his ways. And you have, again, another independent Bureaucracy, this time the Foreign Service that also believes in its expertise and scientific judgment. You may recall In the impeachment process, people said over and over again, Trump, he wouldn't wait, he wouldn't listen to the interagency processes as if this were one of the, this was the forgotten 11th commandment. Moses left behind the interagency process. He forgot to list it, along with the other 10 commandments. It's so important to the bureaucracy. But instead, Trump wanted to say, I'm in charge of foreign policy. I get to decide the foreign policy in the United States and I get to conduct diplomacy. In both cases, again, Trump is making the claim of the 18th century constitution. The president is the only constitutionally recognized officer who exercises the executive power, who enforces the law. Everyone underneath the president is an assistant to the chief executive in order to carry out those constitutional duties. And again, like the FBI and the CIA with collusion, here you have the Foreign Service fighting against that notion, fighting instead for the idea that they have independent superior judgment to the political process. So I think mostly what Trump has done in his presidency actually has to use his constitutional powers in this very defensive way as a shield from these attacks on the legitimacy of his election and the legitimacy of his office. A lot of the other things people complain about are primarily areas where Congress has given vast powers to the executive branch. And Trump has really relied on very traditional arguments and claims that past presidents have made in order to exercise them. For example, like building a wall at the border. He didn't say he had the constitutional authority to build the wall by himself. If he did, I would think that's a violation of Article 1, uh, Section 8. But instead, he said there is a national emergency statute if I declare a national emergency, I'm allowed to move money between different spending accounts in the Defense Department and move it from military bases to a border wall. I actually don't think there was anything really extraordinary about that. Politically, yes, politically disruptive. Constitutionally, pretty standard. I think the major area where I are going to disagree is uh, in the area of foreign affairs. And here again, it's really interesting uh, sign. I have debate uh, debate and argued before about whether the president can start hostilities abroad without Congress, or whether Congress, because it's declared war power, has to give its permission first. Uh, I think the president can go ahead, and that the main check is Congress's power of the purse and power of the military. Notice what Trump has done, though. He's made these claims, very broad claims of constitutional power, but in the opposite direction as a matter of policy which makes his actions, again, almost sort of defensive in nature. Uh, he hasn't been starting new wars. He's been wrapping them up. He's been pulling troops out of Syria, out of Iraq. He's thinking about pulling them out of Afghanistan. He wants to reduce the troop presences in Europe and Asia. If Congress really is in charge, why can't Congress make them all stay there? Why can't Congress stop? The, why isn't the president just reduced to carrying out Congress's wishes. Congress, uh, this isn't happening longer. Congress is much more warlike these days than the president. The president has also been terminating agreements left and right, the Iran nuclear deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Accords on global warming, several arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. Again, the fight used to be Congress being upset that they've been left out when the president makes new deals. But again, Trump is using his executive power to reduce the footprint of the United States around the world if Congress were really in charge, why can't they make us stay in those agreements even if the president doesn't want to? And then the other main area we talked about is the Supreme Court appointments. Uh, I'd be very happy to talk about those in more detail in the Q&A, but of course, I think Trump, maybe his longest term effect on the constitution, I think everyone's talking about that now, is if he does get to appoint three originalist justices to the Supreme Court, he may set the court on a conservative direction for a generation. And that in the end may be his most important effect on the constitution. So thanks a lot for bearing with me. I'd love to hear uh, uh, Sai and have the opportunity to respond to him and the opportunity to respond to uh, all of you in the question and answers, uh, period. Thanks very much.
4: All right, well, thanks so much, John. Thanks so much, Phil. Uh, Thanks to the Notre Dame Federal Society and uh, thanks uh, to Dean uh, for all making this possible. It's it's great to be, Virtually with Phil, Phil and I were uh, fellows at uh, Princeton almost. I don't know uh, two decades ago. I don't know when it was. It seemed it seems a while ago, and we had a, a great time getting to know each other. It was it was a wonderful experience for me, and I think it was for Phil as well. And then John, as John said, I I've been friends with John uh, for more than twenty years now, and we've co-authored a thing or two, uh, and it's it's fun. Uh, to, to be on a, a Zoom call with John. What you see from John is the way John is all the time. He's, he's an hilarious guy and, and full, of, full of good jokes. Um, so I think my book complements John, and this is the book, right? Operators are standing by. It's available on Amazon at your local bookstores. Um, John's book focuses on President Trump, but, but of course talks about presidential powers more generally. My book doesn't talk about President Trump very much at all, because I didn't want a book That was Trump focused. It's really about what the modern presidency has become and how it's um, Somewhat unmoored from the original presidency And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the original presidency, the original presidency is principally a lawmaking Sorry a law executing institution, right? It's an executive It has a check on legislation through a veto. It has a pardon authority it has this authority to make treaties with the Senate's consent, and it has authority to make appointments. But its principal function is executive. I think if you look at the president's presidency today, it's been transformed. It's been transformed through practice. It's been transformed through reconception of the office. So let me describe the changes, and then let me describe how that's happened. Um, take war powers, uh, the point of disagreeing with John. So at the founding, Congress had the power to declare war the power to declare war in the 18th century was the power not to just issue some document saying we declare war or I declare war against you, but uh, the power to decide whether to wage war. Um, And so it was was the the power to decide whether the nation as a whole would wage war. And uh, that power was given to Congress. Now, how do we know it's not just this power to issue some piece of paper uh, because in the 18th century, most declarations of war were issued via non-formal means, i.e. without a piece of paper. As a, the first British Prime Minister put it, most wars are declared of late by the, from the mouths of cannons and not by some piece of paper. Um, and so an attack on a foreign nation was the strongest form of a declaration of war stronger still than some piece of paper. So when they gave this authority to Congress, they understood that Congress can only enact, could only act through bicameralism presentment. Which means that Congress has to pass a bill and then present it to the president. And if he vetoes it, they've got to override his bill, uh, his veto to, make, to, to declare war. And this was said by many people before the constitution. And importantly, it was said by the first president, right? If you read Washington's words as president, he says, I can't take the nation to war. I can't order offensive operations. And he's not the only person. You have Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, and Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, all saying this. And this is the consistent practice of the nation until the Korean War. Presidents do not take the nation to war without going to Congress. That's why you have a quasi war authorized by Congress. That's why you have the War of 1812 authorized by Congress. That's why you have a war with Tripoli uh, authorized by Congress. And that's why you have as late as World War II, five separate uh, de- declarations of war after the other nation had already declared war in the United States. So this is a situation where five Axis powers declared war in the United States and then Congress responded. Uh, that radically changes uh, in the Korean War uh, Harry Truman decides that he doesn't need to go to Congress, which is sort of remarkable, given what transpired in World War II. His justification is we're not at war. We're in a police action. I think this confuses international law with domestic law, whether or not um, the Korean police action is a war in international law doesn't matter. What matters is what our Constitution provides for Uh, those sorts of uses of force and the answer was clear that you had to go to congress ever since then presidents have relied upon their predecessors to justify their uses of force right and so obama is able to say harry s truman did it Uh, bill clinton did it ronald reagan did it and so i'm going to do it and 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 trump's able to cite to all those experiences plus obama in libya That's an example of a living constitutional approach to constitutional interpretation. We don't look at the founding, we look at what more recent presidents have done. Let me give another example in foreign affairs treaties. The treaty clause says you need two thirds of the Senate to consent to a treaty before the president can make it. That's a really high hurdle. Um, But in modern times, presidents make treaties without getting the Senate's two two thirds consent. And again, they cite practice right one category of sole executive agreements has been expanded dramatically to allow presidents to make international deals without any congressional or senate buy-in and then another category has just been invented the so-called congressional executive agreement what what is that well think of NAFTA NAFTA is an international treaty that's ratified after the congress passes legislation implementing it so it's got some sort of democratic stamp but there's no authority in the constitution for Congress to give its advice and consent to the president's ratification of the NAFTA treaty, right? And this was done by Franklin Roosevelt as a means of making it easier to make international agreements. It's essentially read the treaty clause out of the constitution. There are vanishingly few treaties made these days, which is in part a function of the fact that you don't need to go to the Senate to get two thirds of their support if you can do it unilaterally by sole executive agreement, or if you can just get a a majority in both chambers to approve the treaty. This is entirely an artifact of the 20th century. You don't see anything like this in the 19th and certainly in the 18th century. In fact, Washington denies that the house has any agency with respect to making treaties. And the final sort of radical change is I think the president no longer takes seriously the idea of faithful execution duty. As you know, the Constitution says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Modern presidents instead uh, adopt approach of saying, look, I've got a I've got a, a policy agenda that I've made promises about while campaigning and I will implement those policies by hook or by crook. They prefer that Congress legislatively enact their promises, but if they can't get it through Congress, they are willing to act unilaterally. So think of Obama's subsidy of the insurance companies that Congress refused to appropriate. Think of Obama's delay of uh, insurance mandates for employers. Think of the financial bailout for auto companies pushed pushed by the Bush and Obama administrations. Think of the wall that John mentioned. Um, uh, Donald Trump could not get more than a billion dollars through Congress for his wall. The day that he got his billion dollars, he declared an emergency and uh, took the act that John described, which is transfer funds from one account to another. He was relying upon statutory authority, as John says, but he was misusing the statute because there clearly was no emergency. Nothing happened from the time he reached his billion dollar deal with Nancy Pelosi and the time he transferred funds that constituted an emergency. He was basically reading that statute as if it said, Whenever the president deems it necessary or useful to transfer funds, he can do so. That's not an emergency, right? That's not what the statute says. There are statutes that say the president can do whatever he thinks is needful or useful, but that isn't the statute that the president relied upon. How is he able to get away with this? Well, in part, he's able to get away with it because every modern president misuses these emergency statutes. They invoke them and continue to use that authority even long past any emergency, right? There are emergencies that have lasted for three decades um, as if we're in a continuous state of emergency for the past three decades. So I think this is just sort of a common law of emergency that presidents have created by virtue of their acts. It doesn't comport with any sensible understanding of emergency. Um, I don't think that Trump is really any different than his predecessors. He just happened to do it with respect to a particularly controversial act but it's, you know, it's, he's just doing what his predecessors have done in a more controversial area. So I, the presidency I think is radically different in, in these three respects. And one of the points of the book is there's no reason why the transmutation of the office won't continue. There's nothing about these changes that rendered them natural. If you went back to George Washington and asked him or James Madison, do you think one day people will read the constitution as if the president had authority to declare war? I think he would be dumbstruck by the by the suggestion. And so whatever you think the president can't do now, the president can acquire over time, right? Through dogged practice. And he can count on his co-partisans to support him when he is advancing their partisan agenda, right? So if Trump does something that seems amiss in service of the Republican agenda, the Republican base will defend him. If Barack Obama does something in favor of the democratic agenda. Even if it seems amiss to the rest of the country, the democratic base will loyally defend him. And that is one of the means by which you uh, acquire presidential power over time, new presidential power over time. Uh, And then I think, you know, I, I list a bunch of other factors that sort of help the president. One is the rise of political parties, as I just alluded to. The presidents are the chiefs of their political parties and therefore can count upon the base of support when they advance the party's agenda, but they can also rely upon their co-partisans in Congress to defend them without regard to the institutional prerogatives of Congress. No Democrat complained about President Obama spending money without an appropriation. There were some Republicans who criticized President Trump for the wall spending but that's likely because they disfavored the wall. If he had done something that was four square, uh, part of the broad Republican platform, they would have been rather disinclined to to oppose him. And so the rise of of parties uh, in American politics has meant a weakening of Congress because the president is the acknowledged leader of his party. Another sort of thing that I think that's contributed to the rise of presidential power of course, is this idea of a living constitution. The title of the book is a play on imperial presidency. And one of the themes of the book is if, if a living constitution is such a good thing, why is a living presidency so, so bad? And it's basically a query to progressives who favor a mutating changing constitution over time, but nonetheless oppose periodically a changing presidency. And, and my point is that you can't, you can't have it both ways. If if Franklin Roosevelt was right to say we shouldn't be tethered to a horse and buggy conception of the commerce clause, then of course presidents aren't gonna be tethered to a quill and cannon conception of executive power. They are going to update article two in ways that advance their uh, personal and policy interests. And that's what we've had. Uh, so, it, you know, what's, what's sauce for Congress, what's sauce for rights, uh, a, a mutating, evolving constitution is going to be sauce for the presidency. And, and my final point is the presidency, a, a single president has far more influence over the shape of informal constitutional change than any other actor in the government, including Justice Kennedy, because the president can act unilaterally and thereby seek to change executive power unilaterally that's happened uh, many different times I've already sort of discussed that but they also get to appoint new justices who will advance their conception think of Roosevelt think of Reagan um, think of think of Trump right they're appointing people who have a future uh, uh, future influence on the trajectory of constitutional law and they can also activate their bases as they enunciate new, Uh, constitutional understandings, right? If Trump says something about the constitution, he has a good portion of the country that are inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt as to that conception, especially again, where it conduces to their policy platform. So uh, I say that presidents are the 800 pound gorilla of the idea of a living constitution. And so if you favor that, you really are essentially favoring, uh, favoring uh, the outsized influence of one person on the scope of future constitutional change, so let me end by saying, you know, I'm delighted to be here, and if the law school is changed to the you know, Amy uh, Amy Barrett uh, Law School, um, I I will be delighted because that will mean that uh, Judge Barrett made it to the court, and as the Silverman clerk, we think the world of her. Thanks so much.
2: Well, and uh, thank you. And, and let me uh, begin with an apology. Uh, I'm Dean Reuter, I was introduced before, but I didn't hear the introduction. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm having some bandwidth problems here in my, in my home office. So I apologize. I've never had this before, but I'm uh, very pleased to be with you. Uh, and I welcome our two uh, guests and authors, and, and I wanted to thank all the Notre Dame organizers. I do want to give John Yoo, uh, Professor John Yu, he's the author of Defender-in-Chief, uh, a chance to respond to Sai Prakash, author of The Living Presidency. But uh, John, as you as you replied to Sai, um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about whether or not everyone is conspiring to give the executive more power, and if so, why? Is it is it as, Size suggests because of the two party system. So, um, and it seems to me that, you know, when it comes to the treaty power, declare war power, it's a form of delegation, like everything else Congress delegates to escape accountability. But is it that simple? Go ahead, Professor Yu.
4: Uh, It's a great
3: question, Dean, and it's, uh, I think, a big difference between if you read the 18th century Constitution, the original Constitution, or uh, even if you uh, follow size, critique of that constitution uh, uh, or not the critique, the critique of the presidency. Uh, size critique of the presidency is really what the presidency has become, not what it originally was. And what it's become is, I think it's much more due to Congress giving president's powers than what the president has actually done with the provisions in Article II of the Constitution. And we could have debates about the war power, treaty power, and foreign relations. Um, I tend to think that that's where the executive's uh, nature as a unitary actor, uh, right? There's only one person in charge of the entire branch who can act with speed and decisiveness and secrecy and energy as it's described in the Federalist Papers, really comes to the fore, is a national security and foreign affairs. And so I don't have the kind of problem Side does with uh, the, reading the Constitution to give a power that can grow to meet the times because the founders thought foreign affairs and national security were so unpredictable, could not be written down and set within a boundary because you can't predict all the threats that might occur to the country, what might not be necessary to protect it. I think that's the exact opposite of domestic affairs. And I think that's where people's worries about the president's constitutional powers are really coming from these days. Uh, but if you look at all the things that have been going on in our politics, Supreme Court appointments, uh, the rioting and calling out potentially of law enforcement and federal uh, military forces, um, and so on. That's all about delegated power from Congress. That's not the president saying, I have a constitutional power to send troops into the cities. This is a power that's given to the president under the Insurrection Act. This is a law that's passed in the 18th century, and early 19th century. It's been used by many presidents, uh, uh, I think, uh, recently in California, to, to uh, stop uh, the Rodney King riots in 92 or by Dwight Eisenhower to enforce Brown versus Board of Education in the South. But these are all done by laws passed by Congress. And so I think a lot of the concerns that size is raising are really about, has Congress given so much power to the president that the presidency is becoming unchecked? Um, first, that's Congress's decision. As Dean suggests, people are conspiring to do it in the sense that Congress likes to give this power away. They don't want to make hard decisions. You know, those of you in political science, you're probably taught the thing that member of Congress uh, want the most is to be reelected, right? Because they don't have tenure, the suckers, right? If they had tenure, they wouldn't worry so much about it, but they want to get reelected. You don't get reelected by making decisions on policy issues where 40% of the country is going to hate you no matter what you do. Delegate that to the, the executive branch agencies. And the president's happy to receive it because he gets blamed for it no matter what many people in the country now think the president's responsible for everything from crime to the economy, education, housing. So why wouldn't the president at least want those powers that Congress wants to give up so that he can do things which the American people think he's responsible for already? I don't think that's a constitutional problem as much as a political problem. And I don't think it's I don't think one could fault Trump for making it worse. In fact, if anything, Trump potentially is making it better. He's someone uh, unusual in presence and that he's been trying to deregulate. Uh, you may know, uh, I've read about this policy uh, in the Trump White House that says for every new regulation that's issued, the agency has to repeal three existing ones. It's unusual for a president. And it's similar to foreign affairs. It's unusual for a president to Try to actually restrict and narrow his own power. But I think that's what Trump's been doing. And I could see everyone say, What's going to happen in Trump's second term if he wins re election? I think it's a good question. Um, but that could be the agenda for a second term, is further slimming down the government, reducing its influence in our everyday lives, and leaving more and more things up to the states. Uh, but again, as Dean suggest, suggested, this is like a political conspiracy almost more than a constitutional fault.
2: Professor Prakash, um, I wanna give you a few minutes, but maybe you could talk a little bit about presidential power versus agency power and the, the the notion of the unitary executive and whether or not that really is presidential power if the EPA is able to do X, Y, and Z uh, to the regulated community. Um, and also this distinction that the Professor Yu makes between domestic and foreign powers i'm wondering if in the era of globalization and the miniaturization of the world even if you're not a globalist uh you know you can um, get from one part of the world to another much more quickly international commerce is more robust than ever probably Uh, is is the distinction between domestic and foreign powers sort of softening
4: well as to the last question dean i think you know, I, I think there's more commonality in foreign affairs and domestic than John does. But I, I agree that there are differences as well. So I, the way I think about foreign affairs is foreign affairs is an executive power. John and I agree with that, that in the 18th century, the federative power, as, as Locke put it, uh, is part of the executive power. And that when you read the Constitution, the question is, <clears throat> what parts of the federative power, executive power, are stripped away from the president and given to Congress. And I think John agrees that the declare war power is given to Congress, whatever that is, he and I disagree as to what it is. The treaty power is checked by the Senate. Um, you know, the president doesn't have power to spend money in foreign affairs, he has to go to Congress. And so there are a bunch of checks on the president's executive power in foreign affairs and our disagreements, I think, stem over how to how to make sense of those checks. Um, I think it's true that, uh, you know, as, as Locke said, you can't have a statute that um, tells you exactly what to do in foreign affairs, right? It, the discretion is required in foreign affairs to a greater extent than in domestic affairs. And I don't think anything in the 20th, 20th or 21st century has proven Locke wrong. In fact, you might think it's proven him right. And so the, the court has long said that delegations in foreign affairs are more acceptable than delegations in the domestic context. And you certainly see you know all sorts of delegations in, in the foreign context that um, perhaps don't exist as much in the domestic context. With respect to your first question, Dean, about the unitary executive, the unitary executive is this theory that the president um, is responsible for law execution and can direct uh, executive officers as they go about executing statutes and can remove them if he doesn't like what they're doing. And I think uh, John and I agree that this is part of our constitution. I agree that President Trump had authority to fire James Comey. Um, it's not, you know, it's President Clinton fired his FBI director. I think so. I think there's constitutional authority for that. I think the way to think of the EPA is that the EPA is part of the executive branch insofar as it's uh, Enforcing congressional statutes with respect to the environment. It's a little more tricky when Congress delegates legislative authority to make regulations. I don't know if the president can say that he has a constitutional right to control rulemaking. Um, It so happens that he does control rulemaking, right, that with respect to executive branch agencies, at least, he exercises control, i.e. something like the cost benefit analysis that OMB goes through. But it's not as if rulemaking itself is an executive power, right? If we were thinking about rulemaking in the abstract, it's just lawmaking, right? It's done by Congress. Congress chooses to delegate. And then the question is, does the president have some sort of constitutional authority over that? I think his claim over that is not as strong as his claim over prosecution, because that is a quintessential uh, executive authority. Um, And so it may well be that with respect to uh, agencies, we actually have a deviation from the constitution away from the presidency because we have all these independent agencies that are in part enforcing the law without any presidential supervision um, and without direct presidential control. Think of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Election Commission, Federal Communications Commission, all these alphabet agencies are basically prosecuting civil offenses with no you know, direct presidential control. And they're Conceived of as an independent agencies, I don't talk about that in the book, but that's one example where Congress has got the better of the president in a way I think that's inconsistent with the Constitution and in a way that the Supreme Court got wrong.
2: Well, Professor, you um, should should we? You mentioned that that uh, executive powers are probably at their peak during emergency situations and in war um if the president has the power to declare war or at least execute a war without a declaration of war from congress and the power to declare an emergency um should should that give one pause uh especially if he's the guy that gets to declare when the emergency is over um and you know maybe cite as an example the idea that we have a a, an authorization for the use of military force that is approaching 20 years of age
3: and is this really tough question. I think one thing is, if you uh, didn't have emergencies and wars, you might not need an executive. Uh, You know, this is a fundamental decision the framers made and that they thought about uh, quite hard because the other alternative, which most of our other peer countries in the world use is a parliamentary system where there is no separation between the executive and the legislature. The prime minister is both the head of the executive branch and the head of the majority party in the parliament. And, Uh, Our famers rejected that idea. Actually the first draft of the constitution had Congress picking the president. Uh, And uh, there's two reasons. One is there's a a kind of efficiency or effectiveness reason. They thought that legislatures were slow. They thought legislatures dilly-dally that they couldn't make decisions. Uh, And so emergencies were were the ultimate example of that. And national security threats, war. Uh, Congress just is not good at coming together and taking action. Now, uh, and the framers realize this too, sometimes the executive might make a mistake. In fact, it's maybe more likely one person will make a mistake than 535 people. But there are certain situations where it's more important to act quickly than to get it perfect. And I think that tends to be a national security and foreign affairs. That's what the founders thought. That's what John Locke, uh, as uh, Sy mentioned. Uh, thought it goes all the way back to uh, Machiavelli. I think the person really started thinking about the executive power as a separate power. Um, so I would say, yes, you could try to limit the uh, emergencies. You could, Congress could define emergencies in the National Emergencies Act. They could pass laws that would be tighter on a president and what they can do once there's an emergency granted. There, I think the last survey said there's 120 different laws that trigger if the president declares a national, potentially trigger if the president declares a national emergency. You're seeing a lot of them on display right now during the pandemic, right? Uh, the Defense Production Act is not often used and not much thought about by civilians, but it's, one of, uh, it's a vast power that comes into effect in national emergency war that as you can see, allows a president to take over industry. Uh, the problem I think, uh, Dean, in response to your question, in response to Sai, is if you start to try to list all the things that are emergencies if you try to prepare for all of them in advance without giving the executive enough discretion to handle them you're defeating the very purpose of having a presidency and having an independent executive
2: i want to shift gears a little bit and maybe look at the relationship between the judiciary and the executive branch uh, and something that I think it's new, um, um, or I haven't really noticed it before, and that's the the willingness of the judiciary to look behind executive actions to motives. And I'm thinking here, I suppose, of the DACA case or the DUB case and uh, the census case and, and some other examples um, where the Supreme Court seems to be looking at presidential motives or executive motives in their actions and analyzing using those motives to analyze whether or not uh, the actions are legitimate. I'm gonna give maybe Sai Prakash a chance to, to respond to that. Is that a new phenomenon? Have I characterized it correctly? Have I mischaracterized it?
4: I, I, think it's, I think it's relatively new, although I'll have to say, Dean, I haven't really researched the topic. And I think on this point, John and I might have different intuitions. My, my view is if intent is relevant in understanding whether executive action is constitutional or consistent with statutes, then of course you're gonna have to look at intent. And this isn't entirely um, novel because when we think about Congress, certainly in the equal protection area or the state legislatures in the equal protection area, we often are asking about the intent of the lawmaker. So for instance, if a statute is facially neutral, it can still be (coughs) challenged on equal protection grounds as say violating Equal Protection Clause as being based on race animus if you can show a differential impact and that it was motivated in part by some racial animus. Well, if, if that's true for a Congress or a state legislature, I'm not sure why it wouldn't be true for presidential actions, right? That is to say, if a, if a federal act can be unconstitutional because it has a disparate impact and it was motivated by ill intentions, I don't know why an executive rulemaking challenged on equal protection grounds couldn't be similarly challenged. Having said all that, I don't know of a case where the court looks beyond the face of the executive order and then decides to impugn the executive's motives. If you you know, if you look at the the travel ban case, they recount everything that the president said, I think sort of tut tut, but then ultimately uphold it. And so it's a it's an odd juxtaposition of looking at the looking at the what the president said, I think. Disagreeing with the, the the substance of what he said, but not letting that <clears throat> influence its analysis.
2: Um, John, you let me let me let you weigh in here, and then I, I want to, uh, and you can in your answer, if you want to talk a little bit about um, something that seems to excite the conservative community, and that's a possible reinvigoration of the non-delegation doctrine, and/or. Uh, intervention by the court or change by the courts on deference, Chevron deference, our deference, Skidmore deference, uh, what have you. Is, um, give us a prognostication on the second issue. And I
3: think a lot of uh, conservatives feel that uh, if there's a problem, it really rests with uh, breaking this dynamic of Congress, just ceding more and more powers to the, transferring more and more powers to the executive. Um, you know, my main argument is I shouldn't be Uh, applied to foreign affairs where it has a particular need, and it's not really a political cop-out the way it is with domestic policy. you don't need the speed and decisiveness and energy of the executive for domestic domestic policy as you do with foreign affairs. Um, The problem is that the courts can't think of a test to police Congress. Uh, It's hard to say, well, if Congress gives the executive the power to pass tariffs or to retaliate against other countries or to put economic sanctions on people? What's the stopping point between that, which most people think is okay, and then things we won't allow? And so the Supreme Court has thrown up its hands. uh, There was a case in uh, the early 2000s against the Clean Air Act, which basically says the EPA can set any standard to make the air safe and clean in the public interest. And the court said, well, well, that's enough to transfer all the power over the air from Congress to the executive branch. And I don't. I mean, there are several justices on the Supreme Court who say they want to re-examine this, but they haven't been able themselves to figure out what the test should be. Um, and so uh, that's part of maybe my political idea is that maybe it'll be the presidents who have to limit it themselves, and maybe that's what we'll see is like presidents who say, "I'm not going to use all the powers that presidents uh, that Congress wants to give to me." Uh, And that maybe the American people want to uh, start electing presidents, uh, maybe like Trump, who have a more modest vision of what the federal government should be doing in our daily lives.
2: I'm going to give Sai Prakash a chance to weigh in here, but then I think we'll we'll turn to the students. Uh, I think Phil Munoz is going to moderate student questions. And I understand you guys know how to ask those questions. I, I know our experts know how to answer them. So Professor Prakash.
4: I think Congress is to blame for delegating legislative power to the president. Presidents are to blame for signing all those laws into law, even though I think there's an implicit non-delegation doctrine to the Constitution. And the delegation of legislative power to the executive sort of feeds a vicious circle, right? Because presidents already conceive of themselves as policy innovators. They run on changing the law, changing policy, they then come into office and they have all this authority that's delegated by Congress. They have the Chevron doctrine where there is no express delegation, but they are able to prevail nonetheless. And they see all this discretion and they naturally conclude, well, I have a pen and a phone as Obama said, and I can do a lot unilaterally if I can't get it through Congress. And so it actually feeds the beast. uh, the, The beast being the idea that the executive can do what it wants. Um, and so it's not the only cause of our, I think our ills today, but it's partly a cause and it, it exacerbates the tendency uh, of the executive to use, um, to use his unilateral authority to, to make or change policy. Um, I think it's not the only problem because I think presidents themselves are sometimes using authority that's not delegated. Um, I don't think that the border situation is an emergency. Um, and I don't think when presidents declare an emergency for 30 years straight under some statute that the 30th time is sensibly called an emergency, right? Because you could say the first time was, we'd have to go back and actually look at the situation. But after that, it, it just looks like the president's not going to Congress and asking them to uh, codify their policy or Congress is refusing to do so, or all sides are just you know, relying upon this faux emergency to continue uh, whatever policy the presidents uh, some president inaugurated thirty years ago. And I gave you other examples of situations where presidents are just seizing authority. There was no delegation to the president uh, President Obama to subsidize the insurance companies. The entire Congress opposed him, right that That was the whole point. They weren't going to give him the funding, and he did it anyway. It's hard to say that that's a delegation. And even our magnificent military as big as it is, I don't view. The existence of the military as an open invitation to the president to use it overseas. So delegation is part of the problem, but it's not, it's not the reason why we have presidents acting unilaterally in all sorts of ways that aren't traceable to law or the Constitution.
2: I suppose though it is consistent with the the founders vision that every branch of government will seize all the power it can and so we can't in that sense we can't blame the executive i suppose uh but with that let's let's turn to the students uh phil gentlemen
0: um we have a small group of uh students here at uh in person at notre dame let me ask the room any questions here in the room anyone want to ask a question Sure, please yeah
1: it's nice and loud
5: Oh, sure. Um, thank you for coming and speaking. My name is Charlie. I'm a sophomore here at Notre Dame, but posed to both professors, I guess, how would you reconcile the need for a president to innovate and maybe sometimes expand his power or use powers he's been delegated in new and creative ways with the idea of originalism?
3: Uh, we go first up? Yeah, I think that's really... Uh... Question because Cy, I think, is in favor of a narrowed presidency because of originalism, I would say, and, and, and we actually share, actually, Cy and I, very much the same starting points and approaches to interpret the Constitution. I mean, we were both originalists. Um, as Cy mentioned, we even written articles together defending judicial review on originalist grounds, um, even though we had shared a room office together and really were sick of each other. So
4: <laughs> that's not true, John. <laughs> uh,
3: I was sick of you. <laughs> so, and when it comes to executive power, it's similar, I think, to other clauses of the Constitution, in my view, where you could say that what the founders did is they didn't try to write a precise um, provision that was going to stay fixed in time, but they Created a provision that was going to be able to change and adapt to the times. Now, I'm not saying uh, sometimes, as uh, people on the other side of this originalism debate say that that's not everything in the Constitution is actually like that. I think the Constitution has a mixture. If some things were meant to be fixed. Some things were allowed to change. Uh, for example, when the when the Fourth Amendment says uh, you know searches shall be reasonable, or when the Eighth Amendment says no cruel and unusual punishments, or the 5th and 14th Amendments say due process. Those are terms which are you know, rather open-ended, and I think the founders realized when you applied those to uh, certain um, you know, criminal procedures, they could change over time. I think the executive power is like that, because if you look at what the founders thought the executive power was, they defined it exactly in these phrases of it's this – ability to act decisively and speedily with energy, uh, and that it should be able to respond to circumstances which no one could foresee. Uh, so it, it, when you read descriptions like that, they and they say we should try to write it down and hem it in because we can't predict what those circumstances in the future will be. Uh, it seems to me the uh, executive power is one that's seen as a somewhat amorphous can expand or contract depending on the circumstances. That's very different than the legislative power. If you look at Article 1, Section 8, it says the legislative power herein granted, and then it gives you a list of all the things the legislative power includes. And at the end, there's a provision that's, you know the 10th Amendment basically makes clear that you should be inferring new powers to Congress that didn't exist. So I think that, kind of, and this is not my idea, right? This is the idea of Alexander Hamilton, in the Helvidius Pacificus debates, he first really makes this argument. And then he says all the things in the constitution, particularly in article two, which transfer things from the executive to Congress shouldn't, should be read as just exceptions to that general executive power in the president. Just because you say the Senate can give its advice and consent to uh, the Supreme Court nominees doesn't mean the whole appointment of Supreme Court nominees is suddenly transferred Transformed into some joint executive legislative power. It's not, it's still executive, but a small part of it was transferred to the legislature. And I would approach all of the executive power that way.
4: Um, Charlie, I, I think that's a great question. And John and I agree on first principles in terms of methodology. We also agree that the vesting clause is a grant of authorities, not traceable to specific clauses in article two. So it's more than just what you find in article two. Um, John has accurately quoted Hamilton, um, but Hamilton also said, right, that the president can't spend money without an appropriation. The president can't wage war without a declaration of war. The president can't make a treaty without the Senate's consent. And the presidents are doing all, in my mind doing all those things. So I, I think where John and I disagree is the idea that the executive power meaning of it changes over time. John John's actually saying that they intended some kind of living or changing uh, conception of executive power. And I think instead, they had a fixed conception of executive power. They qualified it in various respects by giving certain powers to Congress to be exercised through bicameral's and presentment, and then uh, gave a Senate a check on appointments and uh, treaties, but that everything else rests with the president and that it's fixed, right? It, it doesn't cover a power over some emergency, right? If you look at early emergencies, it's all done through statute. Presidents don't just say it's an emergency and I can do what is necessary, right? The militia is called forth pursuant to a statute, not pursuant to an emergency. Um, And so, you know, there have been emergencies throughout our history and they've, they've been handled, I think for the most part, through presidents acting consistent with congressional authorization Um, One famous example where that's not true is uh, Andrew Jackson's imposition of martial law in New Orleans at the end of the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson suspends habeas corpus um, and does all kinds of great things. And he is the hero of New Orleans, at least he was to older generations of Americans. But um, his president says you don't have authority to impose martial law or suspend habeas corpus. This can only be done by Congress. And this, his president was James Madison. So I, I have that conception of executive power, but, but great question, Charlie.
0: Okay, for those watching online, um, I'll, I'll call y'all, uh, please use the raise hand function via Zoom. Um, uh, our first question is by uh, Kevin Brum. Kevin, I'm gonna ask you to unmute, unmute yourself and then uh, introduce yourself and go ahead and ask a question. Kevin. Hello, uh, my name is Kevin Brum.
5: Uh, I'm a 1L at Notre Dame Law School, Um, and my question is, we actually had another Federalist Society event where two professors were talking about the Supreme Court um, recently, and one of them, they were kind of both mentioning that Roberts has been um, more of a, um, he's had the sort of the status of the court in mind. At least that's what people hypothesize and that maybe that's why the court doesn't really have these broad sort of landmark decisions that you saw for example from the warren court or something and i'm just wondering uh especially with the new supreme court vacancy and this talk that there's a need to sort of police congress's delegation of power to the presidency um do you think the court is uh i don't know if timid is the right word but maybe a little worried about straying into the sort of New Deal era court where they're striking down um, actions of the presidency and they gain the ire of Congress and the president to, to such an extent that um, it's looking like they, they are drawn into the public eye. Do you think that they're kind of worried about that?
3: I, I, I think the Constitution actually wasn't that different in practice until the New Deal. And you know, as some of you may know, uh, under the, the great uh, the pressure of the Great Depression, Congress passes this vast expansion of federal power and massive delegation to the agencies. The court tried to stop it at first. Right? The Supreme Court actually struck down delegations then and struck down the early New Deal for going too far. And then FDR tried to pack the court. And conservatives, a lot of cons- legal conservatives have always sort of said, let's, try to pare back all the things that happened after then so that we can return more to the way the Constitution had been I think, consistently applied up through the New Deal. Um, you see that, for example, um, in Justice Thomas' argument about the Commerce Clause, which is, the, for those of you who aren't lost, it's the, really the great fountain of federal power in our country. Uh, Thomas wants to return it back to really things that cross interstate borders, for example. Uh, You see that in this desire for a non-delegation doctrine that Dean mentioned, this desire to say you can't, Congress can't keep giving away its own power to the agencies. Uh, I don't think that it's really a problem of Roberts um, and his um, trying to, uh, it's more I think that conservatives on the court who want to do this have never had a working five vote majority. And this has been a problem going back to 1968. It's long before all of you were born. Uh, Republican presidents have had the vast majority of nominations to the Supreme Court since 1968. But whenever they get a fifth justice who's supposed to be conservative, that person always sort of starts drifting to the middle. And so I can go back all the way to names that you probably know from the history books like um, Harry Blackman or Lewis Powell or John Paul Stevens, or David Souter, or Justice O'Connor, or Kennedy, all the way up to Roberts. There's a long, proud train of people who were unwilling to be the fifth vote to carry out that kind of revolutionary program. Uh, so it's not just Roberts, I think. It's a lot, a lot of justices have done that. Now, the thing that um, maybe the appointment of someone like an Amy Coney Barrett, I don't know, Do they? Do you, has she reached um, initial status Is she called ACB at Notre Dame yet? So ACB, um, she would be, a, this is something conservatives have never had, actually, which is six justices, which would eliminate the ability of this fifth justice to kind of play this moderating role in the middle. And this happened with the Warren Court and the liberal side, too. The Warren Court never really got going uh, until they had more than five quite liberal justices on the court. So I would think if you got uh, this seat filled in the next two months, then you might see something more aggressive, uh, regardless of whether Roberts is the chief justice or not,
4: Kevin, that's a great question. I'd say that the chief is willing to push, push, you know, push his agenda where he has long felt beliefs. So if you look at his race cases, he actually has said some very striking things, right, with respect to the use of race, even though that puts the court squarely uh, within the line of fire of certain segments of the public. Um, I think, you know, on, on some of these issues, he doesn't have strong positions. And that's where he's most inclined to, to trim because he's worried about the court's position in society. I think if there's an area where it's easiest to try to get things right, it's the separation of powers. The public doesn't care about the non-delegation doctrine, the way they care about abortion. The public doesn't care about non-delegation doctrine, the way they, the way they care about affirmative action, right? They They may care about, you know, the products of delegation, like rules that are produced clean air and what have you. But remember, any any regulation that is struck down by the court on the grounds that it results from an unconstitutional, unconstitutional delegation of legislative power, Congress would be free under the modern commerce clause to enact it tomorrow, right? It is a procedural constraint, not a substantive constraint on con law, right? To say that this, this, regulation that's promulgated by this agency is is constitutional, but it can't be done by the agency. So think about where the pres you know the, the Roberts has been willing to say that removal restrictions are unconstitutional. In part because no one besides people in this conversation care about that. Right? The general public does not care about double four cause protection or, you know, about a single-headed agency which was decided last year the pcaob sorry not the PCAOB, but the you know the the uh consumer uh product uh, financial product safety commission whatever whatever it's called right they don't care about that so it's easier for him to do what he thinks is right without regard to the without regard to the public and i think that's true for for delegation right he can strike down statutes and then just say congress can enact this tomorrow and if they do It'll be subject to the weak commerce laws.
0: I wonder if I can't use the uh, moderators or co-moderators' uh, uh, prerogative and get a question or two of my own in. Um, uh, this is, I guess, more for Professor Prakash, though, uh, Professor. You please weigh in, um, Professor Prakash. Other than uh, people caring more about these things, uh, what, what are the? Uh, is there one or two things that could be done to unravel or return? To the original presidency, as opposed to a living, uh, living presidency, or uh, to come at that question a little bit differently, um, could the founders have done anything differently to, to uh, forestall the emergence of the living, uh, living presidency? In your opinion?
4: Well, the book, so that's, those are great questions, Phil. As usual, you're great interlocutor. I think the book has 13 suggestions for what Congress could do to push back on presidential power involving you know, a range of things from war powers to staffing to a host of other things. And so I, I'm gonna tease the readers by saying they, should, they need to go buy the book. It's, it's got a bunch of different prescriptions. I think you know, in terms of you know, whether the founders could have done things, of course they could have, right? So you know, my understanding is that certain constitutions expressly say in a federal system what the states have exclusive authority over and what the feds have exclusive authority over. You can imagine similar things in article two, right? Article two could have had article two, section five, which said what the president could not do and not left it to implication. The constitution doesn't expressly say that the president can't declare war. It is an implication of the grant to Congress. But if they had said that, and they had said what a declaration of war was, it would be harder for the presidents to acquire the authority. So you can imagine a constitution that more carefully or more specifically, hems in executive power in various ways. There is that to some extent, right? The take care clause is an attempt to say, you should not be suspending or making law on your own. It hasn't entirely worked, right? In part because Congress has declared war and in part because uh, presidents have adopted, I think uh, spurious interpretations of statutes. But yes, of course the founders could have done uh uh, any number of things that would have made it more obvious what the limits on presidential power are but as you know phil and, and and as the students know you know you can have a constitutional provision that says the government can't do something and then society can choose to ignore it right think of the contracts clause right it's basically been read out of the constitution by legislatures and by courts that have acquiesced in in its undue minimization and so just having a you know having a parchment barrier is never enough. You need to be willing to stick to it and have institutions that are willing to stick to it. And so you could have you know provisions in the constitution that say six ways to Sunday presidents can't start wars but if no one is willing to to say that the president can't do this or if the presidents themselves aren't willing to stand up to that, it, it'll be to no avail. One final uh, response to what you said, Phil. My view is that you know John's John's story about the president defending the constitution is great because it's a great title for his book. But I think in reality, presidents don't really care about expanding their office as much as they care about enacting their agenda. I think this president would sign any number of statutes that curb the presidency if he got money for his wall. His wall is more important to him than some abstract conception of the presidency, certainly with respect to war powers, because as John said, he doesn't want to start wars. And that's true for most presidents. They're not wedded to a particular conception of the presidency, they're wedded to their agenda. So it's actually quite, I think possible to get bills on the president's desk that would restrain the presidency and simultaneously advance the president's policy agenda. And I don't think presidents would bat an eye. I think they would sign that on But Certainly the the president who authored the art of a deal or partly authored the art of a deal would be willing to make a deal.
0: Professor Yu, we should uh, allow you to respond to that.
3: I, I, I disagree with sign on that last point, which is, uh, and maybe it does go to your original point, what would you do differently? Uh, if you're at the founding and you're writing the uh, executive branch portion of the constitution, uh, it's the founders didn't uh, expect or need the president to worry or think about the constitution that much. You know, President Trump, they got their wish, right? They uh, (laughs) they needed was somebody who would pursue their interests, right? The founders said, I think, quite clearly, they expected um, the executive and the legislative branches to pursue their interests. And it's by fighting between themselves that uh, they check each other and that individual liberty is protected by making sure the government as a whole stays within its uh, boundaries. That doesn't mean, that doesn't require uh, President Trump to be thinking about the Constitution all the time or all that much. What it requires him to do is to pursue his interests and the executive branch's interests. The thing I think that failed in that system was that it's Congress that's been, I think through our discussion, we see this clearly, it's Congress that's been giving up its powers that hasn't been fighting with the executive that much. Uh, They do on political things, but on constitutional matters, they don't. Uh, And so if you were going to write something, I think maybe into the constitution that's not there, it'd probably be something more about Um, increasing the executive, the president's control over executive agencies, but also limiting what Congress is able to give up. In other words, making Congress take more votes on more important policies rather than giving them up to independent agencies.
0: I wonder if I might just, uh, we're just about out of time, but I wonder if I might just push back a a little bit on Sai's comment and maybe actually to some extent, John, on your comment too. Um, Would presidents be more concerned about the Constitution and their own constitutional powers if there wasn't the two-term limit?
4: I think you're right, Phil. I think they would be, Um, but as I say in the book, you know, they don't, I I don't think they're intrinsically interested in presidential power because they're very focused on the short term. They're focused on their agenda. If, you know, if they could predict with, you know, certainty that their kids would be president, they might want to give a stronger office to posterity. I think, you know, to to circle back to what John said, I think John, you know, John's, I think John's accurately describing this president. Um, I don't think that he's deeply engaged in the constitution. And that's probably true of many of our more recent presidents. They have lawyers that do that for them. But if you read the constitution and you think about the title of John's book, the president takes an oath to preserve, protect and defend the constitution. That's the only oath specified in the constitution uh, the, it, the language of it specified. And early presidents took that quite seriously. They vetoed bills if they contained unconstitutional provisions, full stop. Whereas today, presidents will sign those bills and then just refuse to enforce the portions that are unconstitutional. So I think John's wrong. That I think they really did expect presidents to engage with the Constitution in a way that we might think is implausible, given, you know, our modern circumstances. But I I think I actually think, in this point, the Constitution text actually suggests that John's wrong.
3: Yeah, I disagree with you as usual. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just if that's if you read the Federalist Papers, um, they, you know they 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 don't really they don't have a lot of faith in what they call parchment barriers. They don't really expect judges to get involved here. Uh, they don't talk a lot about judicial review as being the arbiter between the executive and legislative branches. What they really wanted is the executive and legislative branches to fight all the time. And, uh, and they, that is really the mechanism. Uh, you know, it goes beyond um, sort of the idea of uh, you know, sort of lawyerly writing out exactly what uh, each branch should do. It's really expecting them to you know, gather their constitutional powers and using them to fight each other uh, politically.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, Dean Reuter, John Yu, Sai Prakash. Uh, because we missed uh, Dean Reuter's introduction, uh, we didn't get the title of uh, the books that have been referred to. Uh, Sai Prakash's book is called uh, The Living Presidency, An Original Argument Against His Ever-Expanding Powers, and then John Yu has recently published Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, both those books published uh, this year. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much, and thank you to all uh, who watch us online, and thank you especially to the students. Who- this here in person. Thank you. Thank you, guys.